engineers have plenty to be skeptical about. We look to datasets to give us something resembling objective truth. Some areas of research have so many variables that it's hard to isolate fact. Kyle Polish hosts the popular data science show Data Skeptic, where he examines problems and solutions around data. And he's one of the guests today in our roundtable discussion. There are many big unanswered questions in our world that might eventually be solved with enough data and the right scientific approach. Some of those areas are nutrition and drug discovery and image classification. The hiring process is also like this. How can you predict whether an engineer will make a good hire? Amon Bartram of TripleByte is working on solving the hiring process for engineering organizations, and he is the other guest for today's roundtable discussion. Kyle and Amon and I talk about a variety of subjects relating to hiring and data and skepticism. I really enjoyed talking to both of them. And Software Engineering Daily is looking for sponsors for Q3. If your company has a product or service, or if you're hiring, Software Engineering Daily reaches 23,000 developers listening daily. So you can send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com if you're interested. Thanks for listening. Amon Bartram is the co-founder of TripleByte, and Kyle Polish is the host of the Data Skeptic podcast, and today we're going to be talking about a variety of subjects. Guys, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hey, thanks for having me. Hello. So, we'll do some introductory stuff first. Amon, you and I last spoke about a year and a half ago on the podcast. We did a show about hiring engineers, which is what TripleByte is all about. What have you learned about hiring engineers in the last 1.5 years? Catch me up on the diff between our conversation back then and what you've learned since. Sure. I think the, the biggest thing that we've done is just continue to scale up. And so we announced a few months ago that we're now working with Apple and Facebook. And so this is really interesting because we get sort of the, the you know, insight onto the top of, of the hiring market as well, the biggest companies. And I think the most surprising thing I've seen working with those companies is that they actually generally run a better process. A pattern that we saw as we, as we work with early stage startups is that often, you know, very small startups, the engineering founders are heavily involved in hiring day to day and interviewing every candidate and selling candidates and, and sort of making the decisions. And then as companies move up in size, often recruiters are hired. And this is where you get some of the more problematic, uh, just, you know, keyword screening on resumes and things like that. And we are surprised to see that as we move into the bigger companies, they actually get much more engineering driven. And you sort of, once again, we see sort of hiring managers making phone calls to, to help close candidates and really very sort of dash driven process. Hmm. The perception is that those companies have a really well-oiled machine you know, from the outside looking in. I'm just like, okay, they've got a very clear workflow for how they do hiring so TripleByte, for people who don't know, is a company where I'm sure you have a better way of phrasing <laughs> this, but if you're a if you're a company and you want to get more engineers through your pipeline, in your inbound hiring pipeline, you can outsource some of that hiring process to TripleByte. And it's hard for me to imagine how Apple would want to 
Apple or Facebook would want to outsource TripleByte unless they really trusted you guys? Well, I guess they do. That's the, that's the positive answer. But uh, yeah. I think it, it actually makes – so they're very interested in expanding the pool of who they speak to. So they're very interested so, – so we do all our screening background blind. The goal is sort of to sort of be able to directly assess programming skill rather than rely on credentials and, and where someone's worked in the past. And so what you know, Apple and Facebook are both sort of have you know, insatiable appetite for skilled engineers and a pretty high percentage of people you know, on the job market already apply to those companies. And so what they're most interested in is gaining access to strong engineers who their own process screens out early. So an interesting thing is that, so Facebook, for example, is actually explicitly interested in talking to people through us who have already failed their process. And so they, you know, they've seen that we can, we can you know, because we're directly measuring skills, we can find people who get screened out during the sort of the early stages of their process who are, are still actually strong engineers. So they can also use it to refine their own hiring process, because if they say, okay, there was some negative flag that we saw with engineer X, and they didn't, so they didn't make it through the Facebook internal hiring process, but they managed to make it through the triple byte hiring process. What's the diff there? Yep. It's interestingly, I think they're actually pretty. So at, at smaller companies, I, I would agree with you. At Facebook and Apple, they're pretty well keyed in on things that I think are predictive. I think the, the key observation here is that, you know, for example, if you had a rule of thumb that you know you're not going to go forward and interview people who have never worked as a professional programmer and are currently you know doing IT support. Right, that would be a statistically valid rule of thumb. You would <laughs> imbalance talk to better people if you screened out people who are not working you know, as programmers and working in IT support. But of course, you know, some percentage of those people are actually very strong programmers. So what we do is we don't really invalidate their rules. We help them find exceptions to those rules who and help them hire those people. Hmm. Kyle, you worked for 13 years before starting your own company. What was your impression of the hiring process over those 13 years, the hiring process for engineers? Yeah, I mean, I was on both sides of the table there. Obviously, as I got older in my career, more so on the hiring side. And I spent a lot of time thinking about it because there were times when it was difficult to find people and it was a slow process. And I was always disappointed in the most of the hiring processes I went through. So I wanted to do what I could to change that around. But I came out of the whole thing with kind of a game theorist look at it. In data science, one of the key concepts most people will know that some engineers don't is that of a confusion matrix. So you have something of ground truth. Will a person do well in a role or not? The only way to, to know is to hire them, wait six months and find out. But of course, that's an expensive way to test someone. So you need to make what is essentially a prediction. And you know, in a lot of my cases, that's done by an algorithm. But a prediction is what a hiring manager and maybe a team who's contributing to that decision is ultimately making. So if you line those up in a grid, when the team says hire and it's a good hire, that's a plus. When they say don't hire and it would have been a bad candidate, that's also the correct thing. But it's type one errors when you hire someone you shouldn't have that are really, really bad because they can be expensive and bad for morale and all types of things that everyone can kind of imagine. And then there's the type two error where there's a good candidate that you fail to hire. And more often than not, that's actually where people bias towards because the cost of not hiring a good person means you just have to keep looking. So it takes you longer to hire, maybe a little bit more money to hire, but it's not as damaging as hiring someone who isn't a good fit. 
So as a result, we kind of live in this world where I think my advice to people on the market are expect to start with the shotgun approach. You've got to go broadly and see where you kind of fit and expect to be disappointed in surprising ways. You know, jobs you might be perfect might not get offered to you just because the interview process is so biased towards, you know, not letting people through that gate. And ultimately, I think I've learned, too, that the system overall, despite being often run by engineers, is not run like a well-oiled machine. I mean, most people are not trained in how to interview properly. They go into a room and seem to ask questions along the lines of, does this person know the same things I know? Whereas they should actually be asking, can this person do the job? So uh, if there's any bit of wisdom I've got, it's to think more that way, that the, their ability to recall exactly what you studied or to quickly see the problem you've been working on for six months isn't necessarily the best test. But, you know, there's all types of indicators people have to look at. This notion of you should bias towards the false negatives rather than the false positives because you want to avoid making a bad hire. You would rather turn down somebody that probably should have worked at the company than hire somebody that should not have worked at the company. I always found this to be somewhat suspicious because what you should actually be evaluating is the if the potential upside of a, a risky hire is massive, then it may be worth hiring somebody who could have some potential downside. Do you think that that, that calculus around the biasing towards no? Do you think companies over-indexed on the no to their detriment? Absolutely. But I don't know that that's ever going to change because, the, in my opinion, the financials work out best that way. It can be very expensive to hire someone who's not a good fit, but it's pretty cheap to fail to hire someone who might have been a great innovator at a company. I mean, it, it also comes down to like a question of innovation. If you're hiring a technician, like we need you to come in and run our exchange server, you've got 10 years experience running exchange servers, it's pretty cut and dry. We can give you some sort of exam and you show that you're qualified to do it and you come and basically run a machine that is you know, not necessarily maintain or improve it. But in a lot of cases, I think one of the lucky things about engineers, data scientists, you know, anybody in technology in general is, by and large, we have the opportunity to bring innovation. And that's hard to measure. So I think you're right in that sense that sometimes bringing in a few mavericks or new ideas is what's really necessary to help a team grow. But not every company has the kind of vision to see something like that. Hey, Jeff, can I jump in here? Please. So I, th I think an interesting sort of, you know, everything Kyle said is, is, I think, you know, sort of totally correct. I think an interesting sort of addition to that is that companies are not even aware of what their false negative rate is, right? So companies, mm -hmm. companies sort of, play this trick of themselves where they just trust confidently that everyone that they who failed their interview was bad. So it does make sense to optimize for, you know, fewer false positives and more false negatives. But I think companies still underestimate their actual false negative rate. And you can look at that by looking at the sort of the agreement rate between companies. So given given that candidate A did really well and got a sort of five out of five at company A, what's the probability that they, you know, get a five out of five at company B? And, you know, we found that to be <laughs> startlingly low. Yeah, I, I like, especially among what companies like TripleByte that, that you're at are doing in that, you know, if, if a company is screened for 500 people or, or have a position and 500 people have gotten no's, 
the idea that all 500 of them weren't qualified is kind of ludicrous, you know, unless you're really doing something bad at the front end of recruiting. So having a tool to say, let's go revisit our, our false negatives and, you know, let them do this screener and, and a few gems kind of shine through are a really nice auxiliary to that process that can combat this kind of bias towards only type 2 errors. So I know that I'm thankful that I don't have to go through the meat grinder of getting hired as an engineer, at least today anymore. I'm sure that you two are also thankful for that fact. You know, you get you guys at this point are both on the the hiring side of the table, if anything. So let's talk some about getting to that place where you have started your own company and you've you've gotten off the ground. There's a lot of people who listen to the show who are curious about starting their own software company or starting their own consulting business. What have been the hardest parts for each of you for getting your own organization off the ground? Let's start with you, Kyle. Well, I guess, you know, it's knowing what's a smart thing to work on and what isn't. Pretty much anybody with some engineering talent has no shortage of ideas of cool stuff that could be built. But cool stuff doesn't always pay the bills. So deciding, you know, like what is going to pay the bills versus what's going to have some return down the road is important. Kind of assessing where myself or anyone that I'm helping can really get in and make a significant impact, I think, is a a factor beyond the financials that has to be carefully considered. So, Amon, what about you? Let's see. I'll add probably just sort of the the last five last five percent problem. So, you know, the last 5% of any task ends up taking, you know, 50% of the time and multiply that times, you know, four or five, six concurrent things that a company is focusing on. There's there's, there's this sort of explosion of stuff that needs attention. And it's, I guess this is actually kind of getting back to the the, the same thing that Kyle sort of spoke about, right? In that sea of things to be focusing on, figuring out what are the things that are actually ball moving is, you know, an ongoing struggle. And I think one of the most important things that I've gotten better at over time. Yeah, it's almost like a round robin, well, not round robin, it's almost like a priority queue scheduling problem, from my point of view at least, where you've got different queues of tasks. You know, you've got your inbox, you've got your calendar, you've probably got a to-do list somewhere, and you're, it's almost like you've got a single CPU and you just switch your personal CPU between your different schedulers <laughs> and try to schedule tasks against that CPU as efficiently as possible. Performance goes down. <laughs> Performance goes down, although your context switching probably gets better with time. Oh, I'm not, I'm, if only that were the case. I'm not, I'm not sure that's true. Oh. <laughs> okay. Is multitasking possible? It's definitely possible, but there's a pretty big performance hit. And mm-hmm. so I think I'm still biased too far toward doing things that feel like work but are not important. So like, like for me, I don't know, random example, answering email. <laughs> I, I think I should probably never answer email, and yet I continue to do so. Hmm. Yeah, I have a similar thought. I don't know that I can get better at it. Another consideration I have is, you know, I've gotten older in my career and saying, well, where do I want to be later? And if I get good at everything, then I'm only a little bit good at everything. You know, if I want to be a deep expert at one thing, it often means cutting out all of the, either cutting out or delineating or delegating all the stuff that isn't core to what I want to be the best at. So knowing where to strike that balance is, is sort of like multitasking, but I think that's the real key. Yeah. I think an interesting part of it, yeah, I don't know, I, I set out, you know, 10 years ago, think of my career with the goal of wanting to be a deep technical expert, sort of a, you know, <laughs> skilled engineer. And as I moved into starting companies, 
You know, I, I, you know that, that's not what it takes to start a company. What it takes to start a company is broad competence in a bunch of things. Right. Well, and then you maybe build a company that overall has a specific acumen in something that's extremely differentiated, like TripleByte, which is the acumen is hiring engineers. You're trying to build the company that is best at understanding the engineering hiring process. Actually, I want to talk about that a little bit because so from the outside looking in, the strategy for TripleByte was to a series of things. You started by just interviewing engineers, and so this was a service that other companies could outsource to you. Your second step was to pinpoint problems of the hiring process because you have so much engineering flow coming through the door, yep. and you're interviewing all these engineers. So, and, and since the entire company's focused on it, rather than you know the typical place like Google where they're focused on engineering and building new things and business strategy, and then also they have to do hiring— but by focusing on it completely, you're probably going to have insights that less focused companies would not have. And then I think the third goal, which maybe you're starting to do or you, you have already done, is you want to build products and services that solve some of those problems around the engineering hiring process. Am I describing the triple byte roadmap correctly? Yes. Hmm. Okay. Well, so tell me more about where you are in that roadmap. I mean, do you have ideas for what... Because as I understand, I just imagine Triple Byte, and I imagine every day is there's a huge crowd of engineers that are coming through the door, being interviewed, and you're yep. just taking notes and like adding those notes to some sort of internal tool. Have you gotten <laughs> to the point where you're starting to evaluate some products and services that you can build for companies that need help with their hiring yet? Yeah, I, th I think the only, the only correction I'll make to the process is that actually en engineers apply to us. We've never done interviewing as a service. It's always been engineering apply applying to us, and then we help them get jobs at companies. And I think the sort of, yeah, we, we didn't, honestly, what you, what you just laid out is, a, is, a, is a, a better phrase strategy than I think we had at the beginning. <laughs> Basically, we just had, you know, worked as engineers and seen how hard it was to hire talent. And we'd also been engineers and done interviews and realized how frustrating it is to be sort of asked what feel like trivial questions. And so we set out to just sort of focus on it full time and see if we could build a better process. Hmm. And I think the core, the core thing we now focus on is a problem that I didn't even realize existed when we started. And it's that, it's that companies look for pretty measurably different things in interviews. This is sort of partially rational and partially culture. So for example, some companies... I don't know, they, they deal in real money and it's super important that they have very high security standards. And so having a great engineering process and doing careful code review and thinking a lot about security is core to their culture. And so they, for example, probably want to fail someone who, who has a really fast, iterative, get stuff done, but don't worry too much about, you know, the details approach to programming. Other companies sort of, you know, they're building a social product. They want to move as fast as possible and run experiments and they, you know, will fail people for being too slow and deliberative and not being super fast, you know, move fast and break things. So that, that sort of, that makes sense. That's rational. But those differences extend to deeper things too. So, you know, or just more arbitrary things. So company A just has this strong belief that if you don't program in a compiled language, you know, that's the sign that you're not serious. And company B thinks, you know, if you program in a compiled language, you're stodgy and old. And so I think about 50% of interview failures are due to avoidable things, avoidable mismatches. So like a company just, you know, someone not be, having the, the basic approach to engineering the company is looking for. 
And so what we've found is that if we can measure this stuff, we can get the interview pass rate basically doubled. So over the last, over the last two months, about 53% of our candidate of our interviews have resulted in a job offer at a company. And that, that's roughly twice the rate at those own companies. And we're able to get that rate just by basically measuring these things. And, and honestly, I, this is not at all the model I had in my head of, of the hiring institute before, you know, when, when we started two years ago. And something I read is that one goal of TripleByte is to build the engineer genome. So, you know, you talk about these different attributes like attention to security or creativity or proclivity towards social products. You could imagine these being different aspects of an engineer's genome. And then you could also make the ideal genome for a Facebook engineer. And then you can do some sort of similarity calculation between all the different company vectors and the vectors of each engineer, and you can probably get really good at the matchmaking process. That sounds like you've described sort of like a, a nearest neighbor's approach to the matching. Mm-hmm. That's one model that we have tried. We also tried an ELO model, kind of interestingly. <laughs> hmm. But we found to work the best, actually, is to just try to define a few, relatively small number, like, like at this point, like we're about six axes, and then just measure how much each company cares about those axes. Hmm. I heard you in another podcast talk about side projects and the fact that side projects are not a strong positive correlate with getting hired. And my impression is that side projects are actually strong correlates of who makes for a successful entrepreneur. If you're really good at starting your own side projects, you're probably good at starting your own company. And so I found it interesting to hear you say, if I remember correctly, that the hiring process does not select for these entrepreneurial people who start side projects. Why is that? Well, I would state the result a little bit differently. So it's that what we found is that asking people about side projects was not very correlated with how well they could do on engineering interviews, right? So asking them, so talking to someone for, you know, for, for 30 minutes about their side projects and giving them a score of how competent they seemed was poorly correlated with then giving them a programming problem either a take-home problem or, or in-person interview and seeing how well they would, they would do on that problem. And the basic reason was that communication skill ended up dominating talking about side projects. So ability to sound impressive and marshal your thoughts well and generally sell yourself ended up dominating. So some of, some of the best people, for example, are, best engineers <laughs> are you know, very quiet and geeky and not necessarily great at self-promotion. And so those people often do a bad job when talking about side projects and previous work, but then come in and totally crush if you give them a real, a real assignment. Mm. All right. Well, I want to come back to hiring. I want to talk about skepticism a little bit. Kyle, the title of your podcast is Data Skeptic. It's the most popular data science podcast or one of the most popular ones, and I've been enjoying it recently. We live in a time of ever-increasing skepticism. And you can just see this on Twitter and in the news. And Mm -hmm. it makes sense for people to be increasingly skeptical because we have more data, and so we can confirm or refute the hypotheses that people have. There are a lot of things that it makes sense to be skeptical about. So, for example, 
I think about the widespread use of antibiotics in livestock. Is that really a good idea? Maybe we should revisit it. Do we really have the data to support you know, the current level of use of antibiotics in livestock? I don't know. But there are other things that we should probably take at face value. So, for example, the fact that we should eat vegetables. It's pretty obvious from the data that there's not much downside to eating a lot of vegetables, but I cannot say with extremely strong evidence that eating spinach is going to have this output effect. So how do you decide in today's world what to be skeptical about? Well, at a high level, first and foremost, everything in moderation, right? So having the sort of shields up at all points for information coming in, I think is a healthy way to be, but not when it gets into tinfoil hat territory, of course. So the kind of rough heuristic I have for myself is I want to be skeptical of things commensurate with how that information will affect me. So if you'll humor me with the tangent, I want to give the definition of something that I think is really important and and frames a lot of the ways I look at things, and it's how do we measure the value of information? So for example, let's just say you were thinking about buying a used car, and let's also say it's very simple that it's either a lemon or it's not, and you don't want to buy a lemon. And you can kind of go look at the car. Maybe you don't know much about cars, so you're 50-50. Is it a lemon or not? Or you can go hire a mechanic who will charge you money, there'll be a cost, and then you'll know with a lot more accuracy whether it's a lemon or not. Maybe not perfect, but let's say like 95% accuracy. So how much should you be willing to pay for that? Well, there's a, a, a cost in the world in which you buy the used car with no information. And you can still make a decision. Maybe you get lucky, it's a good car, maybe it's not, but there's some expected outcome there. You can also measure the expected outcome of how you would act with the information. So it's, what's my outcome acting with the information? minus what I would have done acting without the information, minus the cost of the information. And that's the value of the information. So, you know, am I concerned that, you know, there's some, I recently heard that uh, people believe that Finland doesn't exist and that's a conspiracy. (laughs) Not really worth my time to investigate or look at unless I want a good laugh, I guess. Do people really believe that? You know, it's hard to say for sure, but it seems to be the case that at least some very fringe group may be serious about that. But... (laughs) You know, even if that one's a joke, I mean, there are people who genuinely think we didn't land on the moon, despite overwhelming mountains of evidence for that. Like, your antibodies case is an interesting one, because that is one I don't have enough to say about, and I can't go either way. It's easy for me to reject, you know, the Finland example, because it's absurd. It's also easy for me to accept something that comes out in a CERN press release, because I trust it's really vetted with the scientific process. But when people say, you know, people with protest signs are saying horrible things are happening because of these antibodies, they might not have the right way of conveying that message, but there might be something to that. So I eat meat. I don't eat much, and I tend not to eat beef. But So I'm not too worried about the, like, you know, medical aspects for myself personally, but I do have, like, maybe an ethical concern, or is that a reasonable way to treat livestock? And and for some people, having livestock at all is is the ethically no for them. I, I don't feel that strongly about it. But, you know, then there's maybe a broad medical concern. Can that practice somehow leak into the drinking water or something like that? Doesn't seem like it, because we have an FDA and all these checks in place, But you never know. But I also know I'm not qualified to ask a question like that. So I look to expertise. There's one podcast I listen to every week that has a doctor on it who I feel is sort of my source for going out and monitoring those sorts of concerns. And I'll 
take what they say with, you know, a, a, a tiny grain of salt, of course, because they're not an absolute source of truth, but you want to have trustworthy expert places to get information from. So I guess, you know, be skeptical of everything, but in moderation. Hmm. And how do you express skepticism when you want to express skepticism around things that are taboo to be skeptical about? So let's say you decided to go deep on vaccines. Like, let's say you were going to have a kid, and you're like, well, you know, I hear, let's say, 3% of the people who I respect are at least a little skeptical of vaccines, or they're scared of vaccines. So you decide... 3% 3% is enough of the your trusted network that you want to go deep yourself and you want to become an authority on vaccines. And let's say you go deep on it and you're like, wow, there actually is some evidence here that is a little spooky. And then you decide you want to express some skepticism to those around you. How do you express skepticism around things that are taboo? Well, there's a couple of kinds of taboos, but I think the case of vaccines are a really good example because... What makes them taboo, I think, in part is because parents feel they want to protect their children, and that's a really good sentiment to have. But we also have to ask, what are we protecting them from? So, you know, vaccines have almost eliminated polio in the world. Meadows, mumps, rubella as a whole were a much healthier species because we've been vaccinating. And the claim that you know, that's out there is that vaccines can cause autism. Now, because there's the potential for great harm here, not only and if that if that were true, that would be really bad. But when people stop taking vaccines, we lose herd immunity. And in fact, we've seen outbreaks in certain communities where their infant mortality has skyrocketed because of this information being out there. So, you know, is it worth having a few less cases of autism for triple the death rate in the general population? I don't know. But let's return to the autism claim. We can trace all that back. And largely on that topic, all of the concerns stem from an initial publication from a man called Andrew Wakefield. That publication has since been discredited, not replicated. It was taken out of the peer-reviewed public literature. So the scientific community is pretty clear that vaccines are safe for the most part. There are some cases where certain people can't get vaccines because of pre-existing or other health conditions. I'm not really qualified to talk about that exactly, but I think that brings me to the most important point is you don't want to take your advice on vaccinations from Jenny McCarthy. You want to go to your pediatrician and talk to them and make sure it's a real pediatrician, not a nutritionist, not a chiropractor, not, you know, a foot doctor. Talk to someone who really knows this literature and works on babies all the time, and you should have that person as a parent. So that's the important person to get your information from. And I think that's true in, you know, just about any aspect. So the other end of of taboos is, you know, people who say, I believe in some crazy idea, be the moon landing hoax people. I've, I used to kind of just say, well, I'm going to not engage with them or, or, you know, ignore it or whatever. What harm is done? It's just kind of a a kooky person running around with a kooky idea. But actually, I've taken a new position that I'm kind of insulted by that on behalf of all the brilliant scientists and engineers who put a freaking man on the moon. That's an incredible accomplishment. And to say that, like, it was all fake, it's like, really? What were those people doing working so hard on so many problems? You know, another one is like young earth creationists, people who express that their belief is that the world is 6,000 years old. While I may respect your right to whatever religious point of view you want to have, that's just demonstrably false. And as I've gotten older, I've gotten less willing to kind of go along with that. But 
at least professionally, there is a taboo. A lot of workplaces you come in with preconceived notions. Something, I guess this hasn't been as controversial as I wanted it to be, but I'm fond of saying is that those people who claim something is an art and a science just don't have the science figured out yet. And I've heard that in a lot of workplace environments where people are maybe protecting an old process or trying to maintain power in an organization. And there, yeah, you have to be very diplomatic about figuring out, well, we've innovated in some way. How is that going to affect the organization? How do we make sure everyone is, you know, valuable, making a contribution here? So those taboos are the ones I actually struggle with the most and, you know, seeing how we can get everyone on the same page to move an organization forward. Yeah, I tend to agree with what you said about the art versus science thing. The people who will say that there's an art typically are people who have not acquainted themselves with the science so much, or that's often the case at least. You know, one thing that I have trouble with sometimes is when I'm talking to somebody about one of these really hot topics like vaccines or climate change is... There's a you know a phrase that people will pull out of their hat, which is well, absence of evidence is not or what is it? Evidence of absence, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. They'll right. say these sort of things where it's basically like implying that this system is so complex that you actually cannot make a strong judgment on this system with your data set, with the size of your data set. And on some of these arguments, that's actually kind of a compelling argument. So is the response there to just, I don't know, like defer the conversation till you have more data? Or what do you do? Yeah, I mean, I think you have to refocus at some point. A, a topic that's come up a lot in my professional life is, you know, as deep learning has grown in how much it's impacting industry and working different places. And people point at deep learning and say, oh, it's a black box. No one knows how it works. Now, I actually disagree very strongly with that statement, but that's another show entirely about how do we interpret deep learning. Let's just say, let's humor that idea and say that technology is a 100% black box and humans will never understand what's going on inside of it. Well, that black box still has inputs and outputs. So if a vendor shows up and they say, we have a tool to, you know, help you in your hiring process, you give us all these inputs and we're going to run them through our deep learning algorithm and out will come a recommendation, hire or don't hire. Well, you can put in test applicants. You can put in, you know, a deliberately bad resume to make sure it flags it. You can put in, you know, resumes that you in advance have some idea about these were good ones or or bad ones and, and see how it scores them. So you can run empirical tests and say this, whatever I'm interacting with has some claim that something is coming out of it. Whatever the claim is should be testable in some way, even if you can't totally understand the mechanism. Hmm. Amon, we're talking about skepticism and we were talking about hiring earlier. What are the common beliefs around hiring engineers that when you started Triple Byte, people would just say these things like sacred cows and you would say, well, I, you know, I wonder if that's actually true. How can we test that? What are the common beliefs around hiring engineers that you've become really skeptical of? Top of my list there would just be very specific ideas that companies and engineers have about the right way to identify skill. And this gets back to the idea that sort of most people doing interviews are not 
you know, they're not carefully trained in what they're asking. They just sort of have some questions that maybe they were asked early in their career that they then sort of, you know, copied. That's often how it works. And then they ask those same questions going forward to everyone they interview. And so what happens there is people think there's this one thing that is just the magic, the magic solution. You know, ask the candidate about, you know, concurrency. If they talk about concurrency, then they're a strong engineer. Or, you know, you know, ask the candidate to corrupt a program on a whiteboard. And if they can do that, they're good. Or never ask them to get on a whiteboard if they, you know, whiteboards are terrible. And I think what we found, you know, just looking at looking at inputs and outputs, right? So looking at people in the door and then trying to, to predict who's going to do well at a company, what we found is just there are, you know, many, many different ways to be good, right? So someone can be a great programmer <laughs> and be awesome at working on a whiteboard, you know, and there are actual arguments for, you know, why a whiteboard is a good way to run a programming interview. This is something that a lot of a lot of people you know have very strong belief that whiteboards are terrible, and you know there, there is a slight argument. So the argument is by having a you know giving an engineer a whiteboard in an interview, you are removing the, the constraint that their code actually compile and run, and so the, you know they don't get they don't get the sort of lose time worrying about the exact syntax of an API call. They can just focus on the core logic. I think ultimately that falls down. I think if you you know if that's you know if that's what you care about, you should probably just have have the the, the programmer write code on a computer and then tell them that doesn't need to run. But there is that argument, and so you know, sort of the more I've done this, the more I've just sort of <laughs> come to challenge all of the sort of all of the beliefs everyone has. Right? The answer is that it's some weighted combination. Like the true signal is just <laughs> you know some weighted combination of all these different parts that everyone has in their head, and any one part can lead you astray. Hmm. What are the subjects around hiring that are taboo to discuss? Oh, okay. Well, okay. I guess I'll, I'll, I'll give the easy answer first. The easy answer is actually all this stuff, right? So if, if you look at any <laughs> discussion on, on Hacker News about sort of a blog post about hiring, right, you'll see deep passion over these exact issues, over whether, you know, whiteboards are fair, over whether algorithms are fair, over whether any specific interview question is fair. And, you know, you see, you see person A, engineers, A, you know, A's taboo colliding with engineer B's strong opinion, and the result is kind of a flame war. So I, I think that's, that's one answer. The second answer, of course, is hiring in the hiring process is sort of on the frontier of, of diversity in tech and age discrimination. Those are two very relevant topics that, you know, because of their importance, have, have a certain amount of taboo. Are you making efforts to normalize against those or... Are you just starting to study them? Yes. Yeah, so we are the main thing that we do. So the main thing that we do is try to, you know, our, our goal is to directly assess skill. And so we hope that by ignoring backgrounds, we are leveling the playing field. So we, we monitor our data to make sure that we don't see any sort of problematic signs of, of bias. But beyond that, our primary focus is on sort of how do we directly assess the skill? TripleByte's a Y Combinator company, and I've seen some great posts from the Y Combinator founders, Jessica Livingston and Paul Graham, where they talk about taboos. Jessica Livingston had a post several months ago called The Sound of Silence, where she was talking about the most useful things that she's learned at startups, but she was talking about the fact that she actually can't talk about them because if she were to discuss them publicly, they would be too controversial. Paul Graham had a piece about this called What You Can't Say that was really popular. I think that's like five or ten years old. If you're a startup founder 
And you need to know these things, these useful things that are taboo or controversial. How do you get access to that information? How do you get people to tell you these secrets? Well, let me push back a little bit on the, on the idea, with, at least in, 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 in the scope of, of hiring. Mm. So the, the topics that are most taboo in hiring are things that I think the proper response is to ignore them. Right. The, the best response, you know, is, 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 you know, so, so, well, okay, that's that. Well, there you go. I'm, I'm waiting in deep here. <laughs> so the goal of a hiring process, right, should be to be blind, when directly assessing the skill, to be blind to background. Right. The goal is that, you know, female programmers and, you know, programmers of different religions and backgrounds are treated identically in the technical evaluation. So I think it's definitely worth sort of reading up on unconscious bias and the things that, that can be done to, to improve that. But beyond that, I don't think there's any sort of, you know, huge dark secret that, you know, I could say that would help a company hire better. There is, you know, it is, it's a very charged topic. You know, it's very, very important and everyone's very interested in it. And so, you know, as, you know, the founder of a company working in this space, I do need to be careful about what I say because there's a lot of controversy I can wade into. But I don't think that's ultimately sort of resulting in important information being suppressed and not communicated to, to companies. Okay. Yeah. Maybe I should be more clear because... What I'm referring to is not necessarily the taboos of hiring, but specifically, well, I guess I should say more generally, Jessica is talking about the fact that there are these things that people can't talk about publicly because they're too controversial. So maybe it's something like if you're a founder, and this is, I I don't actually believe this, but like maybe it's some (laughs) secret, like if you're a founder, you should have a bunch of ways where you can screw your, you know, later employees out of their equity. You should have you should have these like little clauses in their contracts where you can actually screw them and pull the rug out from under them. That would be an example, if it were true, of something that you would not be able to talk about publicly because it were controversial, but maybe it's positive expected value to actually do that as a founder. My question is more about if that kind of thing were true, something that people actually could not write about without getting you know, kind of in trouble with the community, how would you find out about it? Is this just something you have to be kind of in the in-group and you have to have the right, you have to be sitting down at the right dinners where people will talk about this stuff? Yeah, okay, that makes perfect sense. Um, yeah, friends, mentors, you know, I, I've, I've been through my combinator myself, so so that's that's sort of a, a great place to get that kind of information. Let me actually address your specific example, though, because I find it interesting. So, so an example of that is the vesting schedule for employee equity. And I don't know if you're familiar with this issue, but, but so, that, so that incentivized stock options by law have to be exercised within 90 days of mm-hmm. when a candidate leaves the company. And so that's the standard that most companies go with. And this ends up putting employees under a lot of pressure when they leave, often to sort of be, be able to, to pony up a large amount of money to exercise options or, you know, forgo, forgo the equity. And you know, so, yeah, I've been in rooms where it's debated whether that's right. So that policy of 90 days, you know, comes from tax law, but it's possible to change how you issue the options such that they convert into from ISOs to NSOs at 90 days. And there's a lot of debate internally at Scott about whether that's good, right? So it's it's friendly to the employees because it gives them, you know, the equity they've already vested, allows them to, you know, hold on to it. But on some level, it makes it easier for people to leave your company. And so there are founders who argue that, you know, that you're being too, you know, too, too bleeding hard if you, if you go with the longer exercise window. I think that startups are actually pretty biased against employees. And so I, I'd actually would rather that <laughs> startup founders maybe don't have access to that kind of information. So maybe it's actually good for the world <laughs> if ideas like that don't spread and people just you know do the thing that's that's friendly to the employee. 
what I thought was interesting about this debate, I remember reading about this whenever it was in the news, I don't know, a year or two ago, and I think there was a point-counterpoint between Scott Cooper of Andreessen Horowitz, which is the venture capital firm that brands itself as being the most founder-friendly, and Adam D'Angelo of Quora, who wrote about yep. the 10-year vesting schedule that they have at Quora and writing about why that's important and why it is more in accordance with long-term thinking. Do you remember the the framing of each side of that argument? Yeah, I read that. I read that first. I believe so. Do you, yeah, should I, should I say? Well, yeah, yeah. If you, if you remember, I mean, I, I, it's kind of kind of random off topic, but I, I'm actually <laughs> curious about that. We haven't talked about that on Software Engineering Daily. Okay. So, so first, let me just go over the issue to, so that, that listeners are familiar with it. So, you know, employees are, you know, given a, an equity grant, usually in the form of options, and those options vest at some schedule, often, you know, you know, over, you know, one quarter after one year, and then the remaining, you know, the remaining three quarters over the next three years. But by law, those options are almost always ISOs, which means they're given certain tax preference when exercised. By law, ISOs have to be exercised within 90 days of when an employee leaves a company. And so that means if someone is an employee at a, at a very you know, successful startup, maybe their equity has appreciated a huge amount. And, and so they need to, you know, in, in order to exercise those options, they need to pay a tax that difference, difference between the fair market value and the amount they're paying. And so that can be... A large that, that can be tens of thousands of dollars, you know, maybe hundreds of thousands if it's a very successful company. And so that sometimes prevent, you know, but but you know, that's that's basically a bet. You're placing a bet on the future success of the company. Mm-hmm. And so that places a lot of pressure on employees to make this hard decision when they're leaving a company. Mm-hmm. And so the argument against it, the argument in favor of the 10-year exercise window, is basically that we're talking about compensation that the employee has already earned. So the employee, you know, you, you, you sign a contract, the employee, you know, was given X percent of the company in options over four years. You know, they stayed for those four years. They've earned their equity. And it's just like totally unfair to sort of, you know, via, you know, some you know, tax law and the fact that they don't have access to capital, you're going to claw that back from them. And the argument is just that being friendly to employees and giving them what they've earned is, you know, a better foundation for a company. That's the position that, that I take. Mm-hmm. The counter argument is just that startups are brutal and you have to be, you know, <laughs> you have to be efficient. And the current state and basically that getting taking cash, so basically taking ownership out of people who are actively involved in the company is, is harmful. So the, the argument is that a company has a, the highest probability of succeeding if as high a percentage of the equity ownership as possible is held by people who are currently on the ground at the company working, trying to make it succeed. And so you want to minimize things that involve people who are no longer, you know, involved in the company's day-to-day owning equity. Yeah. And so by making it easy for people to quit and take their equity with them, you're sort of diluting the incentive to succeed. Yeah, and the the pressure with the 90-day option exercise period is that you have to have you have to spend cash on an illiquid asset in the hopes that that asset is going to be worth some money in the event that the company has a liquidity event. So it's it's a such a gamble to pay for those options with the, in the 90-day period, you should have the option to execute that purchase over a larger period of time. That is my opinion, especially because Silicon Valley's a small place. And if you hear about, oh, TripleByte is the place where if you go and you leave your job, you're going to get screwed on your options. You're going to have to fork over a bunch of money on, on this big gamble if you want to actually take advantage of your vested options, 
that's actually really harmful for the hiring press. I mean, you you look not to not to name names, but you look at Uber and like these things add up. If you have cultural issues, and I would classify this as a cultural issue because it essentially comes down to are you going to have a cutthroat option schedule or not? That's that's going to have cultural implications. And the lesson of Uber is that these things add up. And you know, I think this is a good segue into self-driving, which is the last topic I wanted to talk about. When you get to a place where the market is so competitive, I mean, the market for self-driving engineers has got to be one of the most competitive engineering markets that's ever existed. And it's basically like, who is going to go work at Uber? I mean, there are people who will still go work at Uber. I, you know, I know they they are still hiring some some great top self-driving engineers, but you know, the reputation stuff has really harmed them. Anyway, so look, how's the self-driving market is triple byte is self-driving such a domain specific expertise of engineering that triple byte is sort of staying out of that area or do you feel like you can still service a company that is looking to hire self-driving car engineers no we've we've placed a bunch of engineers at cruise particularly mm. right by gm last year i think it, it varies a lot by perhaps kyle can speak to this as well it varies a lot by company sort of what so we we like we're not working as much with people who are sort of deeply experienced self-driving specialists but you know there's of course there's, there's a range of experiences on an engineering team so, you know, Cruise, for example, it, it's, they're certainly hiring, you know, small number of deeply experienced, you know, self-driving and machine learning specialists. They're also hiring, you know, people to sort of, you know, just work on, on you know, building the actual production system on sort of, you know, specialized operating system and people to, you know, work on the, the infrastructure around it and people to work on the sort of the machine learning, you know, testing infrastructure. And so, you know, these are, there, there's the sort of wide industry around of sort of, yeah, this is, calling them support roles is, is actually quite, actually too pejorative, right? Because they, they're, they're actually deeply intellectual, very, very hard, you know, engineering roles, but not, you know, sort of any team is going to have a small number of deep domain experts, and then a larger number of sort of, you know, people doing the actual rank and file, you know, rank and file, you know, workhorse engineering work. And I think those jobs are actually pretty approachable. Hmm. Right. Okay. Kyle, have you thought much about how data engineering and data science at a self-driving car company is different because it seems like the volume of data that's coming in at these companies is is an order of magnitude larger or it threatens to be maybe it's not today but it threatens to be have you thought much about what the data engineering pipeline for a self-driving company looks like to a certain degree. So, I mean, I don't know as much about what's necessarily in all those cars because I'm not actively in that industry. I follow it. I'm hugely excited by it. I can't wait. I, in fact, have a prediction that my young niece will never be allowed to drive a car because I think by the time she turns 16, it's going to be illegal for humans to drive, or at least that's the world I hope I get to live in. But as far as like, you know, yeah, there's massive amounts of data. They're probably generating a gig a second from the LIDAR and the cameras and the everything. But all that information is very transient. You know, Amazon knows every purchase I've made over the last two decades. My self-driving car is going to not have to remember how bad of a left-hand turn I made six years ago. You know, it, you need very quick, decisive information. So the data storage isn't as big of a problem. I think it's going to be more around throughput and things like that. 
But then on the other side, we know that the main technology that's really making these cars happen is deep learning. And obviously, I'm sure there's been innovations in the laser space and all types of stuff like that. But at least the most front and center thing is deep learning has made a lot of this image and video processing possible. And those models are incredibly difficult to train offline. But once you've trained them, they're relatively easy to run in production. So you know, the, the, then it's just a throughput of how do we make sure the cameras are, are synced up to this thing and it's kicking out all the signals at once. Depending on how you've organized that, if what your first wave of infrastructure does is just pull out geometry from the scene, if it does it really well and there's not a lot of errors in it, then the problem at that point becomes a little bit simpler from there forward. So I don't know so much about the architecture, but kind of as Amon said, like, it's not just support roles. There's, it's clear self-driving cars are going to play some big role in our economy and our society. So yes, maybe the coolest obvious thing to work on is like the, the video kind of work of it, but even, you know, how will highways change when the majority of cars are automated and urban planning and stuff like that, there's going to be a lot of supporting really interesting engineering problems surrounding it. So self-driving cars are this, you know, blossoming area of different cool problems to be working on. Hmm. Amon, do you have any perspective for how, the self-driving car growth is going to affect hiring, both in terms of the amount of roles in in self-driving and the salaries? The salaries we see, I think, are pretty much in line with the rest of the industry. One comment I'll make, which is interesting, is there's actually a pretty big surplus of interest in machine learning roles in general and also in self-driving car roles right now. So it's actually, it's not, if you're a, a you know, engineer for four or five years of experience and you want to get involved in machine learning and self-driving, it's actually pretty hard. There's huge demand for people with actual demonstrable, you know, like demonstrable you know, industry experience building an actual system. Those folks are, you know, are very, very highly in demand and, you know, that they get bid up, salaries go up. But people, you know, who, you know, are trying to move from back and forth to machine learning have maybe sort of, you know, done, done the Coursera courses and done a few projects at their, at their job and are applying for a full-time machine learning role. Those people we see actually struggle a bit um, and often end up taking sort of a slightly tangential path in. So they take, we see those folks moving into data engineering roles and working, doing those for a few years and then moving on to an actual machine learning role. All right, guys. Well, thank you so much for coming on Software Engineering Daily and talking about a variety of topics. Everyone listening should go check out Data Skeptic. And if you're looking for a job, you should check out TripleByte. Or if you're looking to hire engineers at a better, faster pace, check out TripleByte. Thanks again, guys. Yeah, great to be here. Thank you.